Morning, everybody. Feels like feels like I haven't seen you for a long time. It's like the only. I think I've only been once in the church in the last six or seven weeks. Probably. Have you guys since the first day back? Oh, welcome back. Good to see you too. We've all been all been adventuring in various places. We, Erica and I, were in the South Island last week. If you think this is cold, spend some time in Omaru. It was it was freezing. And Erica's just about been living in that coat that she's wearing at the moment. <clears throat> but anyway, we, we had a good time. We saw some, we met up with some people we had not seen for 40 years, including the pastor who married us, Dutch pastor named Hank Smith. And uh, they're in their 80s now, him and his wife, still in good health. It's good to see them and their, their children. Um, Erica and I were in a church called the Family Centre in Christchurch where we met. And uh, there was a youth group that used to meet on a Friday night called Youth Alive. And uh, it was great. There was free worship and lots of fellowship and very closeness. And a lot of that group are still kind of together worshipping at the same church in Christchurch. So the foundations in, of a youth group, a good youth group, and the young adults group is, cannot be overstated. Um, before I get into this, I've got to start with a customary joke. Just to, just to get you awake and listening. All right, probably one of my favourite jokes. There's the old guy, he's 92, and he's, playing, he's played golf all his life. And he loves it, but his eyesight's starting to fail. And he can't see where he's hit the ball. So he says to his wife, I think I'm going to have to give up the golf. And she says to him, well, you know, your brother, I know he's a year older than you, but he's got 20-20 eyesight. Why don't you take him with you? He can see where the ball goes. And between you, you'll be able to still play. So he says, all right, I'll try that. So he's out the next day, takes his first shot. And he says to his brother, did you see where that went? And the brother says, yep. And he says, well. And the brother says, I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) It's got nothing to do with the sermon today, but I do want you not to have any senior moments because I'm going to get into a little bit of... um, Old Testament um, teaching that has parallels today, and you will need to focus and concentrate because it's um, some, it's not light and fluffy. This is uh, this is quite um, interesting and, and amazing stuff. Once you get into the into the word, what I'm going to do is start with a, a reading from John, but paraphrased. This is one of my favourite. Well, this is my favourite Bible commentary, and I highly recommend it. It's a guy who provides a bit of context and. Um, um, understanding and interpretation of the word, um, and it's easy to read. So I'd, I'd really highly recommend that one. Have you heard of it, Frank? Yes. David Pawson, Unlocking the Bible. So this is from John 1, and he's paraphrased it. So at the first moment of its existence, the whole reason for our universe was already there and had been there from all eternity. Both the purpose and pattern of it all were to be found in a person, someone who could look God in the face because he too was fully divine. And from the start of what we call time, he was working alongside the creator. It was through this partnership that everything else came into being. In fact, not one thing was made without his personal involvement. Even life itself originated in him and his own life sheds light on the meaning of life for every member of the human race. His light goes on shining through all the gloom of human misery, history, because no amount of darkness can ever extinguish it. In the course of time, a man appeared with a special commission from God himself. His name was John the Baptist, 
and he came to announce the imminent appearance of this light of life so that everyone could put their faith in God by getting to know this person. Now, John himself could not enlighten anyone, but God sent him to point out the one who would. The real illumination was already entering the world at the very time and was going to show everybody up by shining among them. He came right into this world, the world he himself had brought into being, and yet the world did not recognize him for who he was. He arrived at his very own place, but his own people would not give him a welcome. Some did accept him, however, using his name with utter confidence, and these were given his authority to regard themselves as God's new family, which indeed they were, now by birth, and not because of their physical beings, but by the direct act of God. So this divine person who was the reason behind our whole universe changed into a human being and pitched his tent among ours. What I'm going to do is talk about um, some of the uh, uh, archetypes or types of Jesus in the Old Testament. There are too many to go through in one message, and each one you could spend weeks on. But let's go through a few just um, quickly. The first one I'm thinking of is Abraham and Isaac. So Isaac is a type of Jesus in that uh, Abraham was... um, he was told by God to sacrifice him. So Ab- he was the only begotten son of Abraham, and yet Abraham, in obedience, took him up the mountain, told Isaac to carry some wood up to the mountain, created an altar, and he put Isaac on the altar ready to sacrifice him. And it was only at the last minute um, that the angel of the Lord stopped him and, and told him, sacrifice that ram instead. There was a ram in a bush, caught in a thorn bush actually, and it was a year-old um, ram, and uh, they took Isaac off the altar and sacrificed the ram instead. So there's multiple parallels here with the story of Jesus. First of all, Isaac was the only son, the beloved son of his father, Abraham. Isaac was in his early 30s. We often see the children's uh, Bible story books showing Isaac as a young boy, but he was about 30. So he could have easily overcome his father, but he went willingly to the, to the um, altar. Um, Christ was also in his early 30s when he died for us and went willingly to his death. As Isaac was heading up to be sacrificed, he carried up the very wood he would have to die on. Jesus had to carry his own cross, right? Three days went by from the time Abraham was told he had to sacrifice Isaac to the moment of Isaac's deliverance. Uh, likewise, Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. We not only have Isaac as a type of Jesus, we see a picture of Christ and the ram caught in the thorns. What was the crown that Jesus wore on the cross? Crown of thorns. Um, Really interesting when you start to look for parallels in the Old Testament with the new one. The next one I'm thinking of is Joseph, and he's probably the most detailed type of Jesus in the Old Testament. If you remember the story of Joseph, he he was a shepherd boy. He was one of the youngest of 12 brothers. Jacob's loved him more than the other sons, and he gave him a very nice coat to wear. Remember, the, the, uh, I think there's, there's even a musical called the te- uh, Joseph's Technicolor Rain, uh, Dream Coat. Joseph's Technicolor Dream Coat. Anyway, the, the, Israel, the brothers were jealous, and they conspired to kill Joseph, but instead they took his coat and they threw him in a dried-up old well. And a, a caravan of Ishmaelites showed up, Joseph's brother, Judah, decided to sell them, sell Joseph to them as a slave. He was sold for 20 pieces of silver. 
His brothers told their father that he was dead. And while, Jesus, while Joseph was a slave, he was put in charge of the house of Potiphar and did a really good job, and Potiphar um, promoted to, him to oversee everything in that house. Um, there was a day that jo- uh, Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph, and he, he, re- he rebuffed her and, and then accused him of rape because of the rebuff. So, the, so Potiphar threw him in jail. Now, while he was in jail, he met up with two other people in jail, and he started to interpret their dreams. And he, and he told them one of them was a, a butcher and one was a baker, I think, that one of them would die and one of them would live. Um, Pharaoh had a dream that no one could interpret. Uh, Joseph's reputation as a dream interpreter reached Pharaoh and he had Joseph brought before him. And Joseph correctly interpreted his dream and gave um, Pharaoh some advice that, that saved uh, the, the, the Egyptians from um, seven years of famine. So he was elevated to a position of authority over the whole land. And later he was reunited with his family. They didn't recognize him, especially his father who thought he was dead. And because of his new political position, his brothers had to bow down before them, him. That was something he had told his brothers early on as a prophecy. Um, first, he treated them as subjects, but afterwards he forgave them and, uh, and he treated them as family. He told them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So all of this is in Genesis 35 to 30 to 41 or 42. You can read all that there. But the, look at all the parallels. I've got a whole table of them here. Um, he had 12 brothers. Jesus had 12 disciples. He was a shepherd boy. Jesus is referred to as the good shepherd. He was foretold of his future reign, and Jesus foretold of his future kingdom. He was stripped of his coat. Jesus was stripped of his robe. He was betrayed by his own. Jesus was betrayed by his own. He was sold for silver. Jesus was sold for silver. He was cast into a pit only to come out unhurt later. Jesus was cast into a grave only to come out later. He overcame temptation. Both of them did. Unjustly sentenced. Both of them. Um, Who betrayed him? Judah betrayed Jesus. Do you know what the Greek name for Judah is? Judas. Wow. Amazing, isn't it? Uh, He was warned of impending doom and made made the way of preparation. And Jesus warned that those who were prepared and by believing in him wouldn't perish. There's so many parallels. You could, you could spend weeks uh, studying the two passages and, and uh, seek to understand God's purpose in, in giving us Joseph as an example or, of, or um, a type of Jesus. There's lots of others which we're not going to go into today. So, so some Bible scholars talk about the first animal sacrifice. So remember when God took skins of animals to cover Adam and Eve? In a way, that's a type of Jesus because uh, animal sacrifices to cover the sins of, um, of his children. The Ark of Noah is referred to as a type of Jesus. Salvation for the world, only through the, through the Ark. And there was only one door in that Ark. You had to go through that door in order to be saved. Of course, the Passover lamb, which we, we celebrated today, is... Um, when uh, Moses brought, um, when he was trying to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, there were, there were a number of plagues that the Lord brought upon the Egyptians. But the last one was the worst one, and that was, was he was going to kill all the firstborn, firstborn boys in the houses unless 
they sacrificed an animal, an unblemished lamb, and put the blood over the doorposts. And um, the Israelites celebrate that um, event even today with the Passover. That's what they call the Passover. The angel passed over, the angel of death passed over the houses that had uh, blood on the doorposts. And Jesus is a type of that sacrificial lamb, the blood over the doorposts. Um, Joshua is a type of Jesus. Their names are equivalent, Joshua, Jeshua. Joshua led the children of Israel to the promised land. Moses had to be left behind because he represented the law. Right? Joshua brought them into the promised land, a type of Jesus. Uh, there was a, a priest, a king priest in the Old Testament called Mel- Melchizedek. In Hebrews, uh, it draws a parallel between Melchizedek and Jesus. Um, in 1 Corinthians, Jesus is referred to as the last Adam. So we had the first Adam who led us into sin and, and um, separation from God. Jesus is the last Adam who brings us into unity with God. Now, the one I want to talk to most about today is the tabernacle. So when the, when the Jews were wandering around in the desert, God established his presence among them by dwelling in the tabernacle. The tabernacle had three rooms, as shown on your, on your um, diagram. There was an outer court. There was a holy place, which is the, the bigger of the, the two rooms in the middle there. And then there was the Holy of Holies, otherwise known as the Most Holy Place. And God dwelled with the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the, the tablets of the, the Ten Commandments, and had a couple of cherubim sitting on the, on the thing. and had the mercy seat. Uh, God dwelled in there and... Um, and the holy place um, was just outside there. So on the, in the outer court, oh, let me give you a little bit of history first so you've got some, so you've got some um, context. So they, they used this temporary tabernacle, um, portable one, for about 400 years. But David, King David decided that God needed a, a, a bigger temple and, and he sought the advice of Nathan the prophet and and developed all the plans for the temple, for a permanent temple. Um, David had, uh, had conquered the city of Jerusalem, which at that time was, was um, occupied by the Jebusites. That happened to be on Mount Moriah, where Isaac had been nearly sacrificed. All right? So there's a lot of spiritual um, significance to where the city of Jerusalem was and where they decided to build the temple. So... Um, <clears throat> the Incidentally, the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem now sits on the same place where the temple was sitting. So um, David wasn't allowed to construct that temple, but Solomon, his son, was given permission to. So Solomon Solomon, uh, developed the plans and built it over a period of about seven years, and that temple stood for about 400 years until it was demolished by the the Romans after, after Jesus' death. Um, it's interesting to note that in the Bible there is one chapter about the creation of the world. There's 50 chapters relating to the tabernacle. So it is significant. It's a very important thing to know about. <clears throat> so let's go through the, through the bits of the, of, the, of the temple. So the outer temple had a, a brazen altar. This is where they sacrificed the perfect lamb. And, um, and the blood of that lamb was um, to, to cover the sin of, uh, of the people. Uh, the lava was a, a brass lava was full of water and that was uh, used to purify um, 
anyone uh, giving the offering. So, so the water out of, it was taken out of there and put into 12 um, other containers and they were used for, for ritual washing of um, f hands and feet. And then the holy place was a, only, the, only the priests could go in there and they would only go on the Sabbath. And um, the table of shoe bread was, um, it had some flat uh, unleavened bread on there, 12 loaves. And the priests would um, eat together like we have today in communion. Um, and then they would replace the loaves and they wouldn't come back in there until, um, until the Sabbath. There was an altar of incense that, that went continuously. So it was a similar construction to the, to the uh, brazen altar, but it was much smaller. And the incense burned continuously and issued a, a, a sweet-smelling um, smell in that uh, odour in that um, holy place. Um, and then there was the, the Holy of Holies where the, the Ark of the Covenant was. And between the Holy of Holies and the holy place was a very thick embroidered veil. It had reds and purples and um, symbols of cherubims on the, on the veil. And this is the veil that, um, that split into two when Jesus died on the cross. Okay, I think I've covered everything there. Okay. Um, what you should realize is that the earthly temple is a reflection of God's heavenly one. The rituals of the temple are deeply symbolic. And if we understand them, then we can also help. It also helps us understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. They're inextricably linked. All right. Revelation 11:19 says this. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within this temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Now, Jesus um, associated himself with the temple. Excuse me. In John 2. 1821, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But of course, Jesus was talking about his own body. So he's referring to his body as the temple of God. Okay. You remember Matthew 27, that veil, which you see in the second picture here on your newsletter, was torn in two. This was a very thick embroidered veil. Uh, the Jews, the, the Pharisees and the um, Sadducees blamed an earthquake, the earthquake that happened when Jesus died on the cross for splitting the, the curtain in two, and they quickly sewed it up. But the fact was God didn't dwell there anymore. You know, Christ had made a way for us to enter the temple without the need for a priest. Because only one priest was allowed in that room, and only once a year, Right? On the Day of Atonement, he would be allowed into the Holy of Holies to commune with God. Um, right. I'm just going to read from John 14. If you've got your Bibles, have a look at it. John 14. I'm just going to read from verse 1 to 7. Don't be troubled. Believe in God and believe in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not true, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again 
and then I will bring you my, into my presence so that you will be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, those three gates in the temple are those three entrances, the outer one, the inner one, and that one. In, rabbinic, in rabbinical um, tradition, they are called the way, the truth, and the life. The gates are called the way, the truth, and the life. So when Jesus was saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, to everyone who was listening to him at that time, they would have known exactly what he was saying. He was saying, I am the way, all the way, to the Holy of Holies, to the Father. And no one comes to the Father but through me. So when that curtain split in two, Jesus provided a way all the way into the Holy of Holies. Hebrews 9, 11 and 12 says, But Christ came as a chief priest of the good things that are, are now here. Remember, the chief priest was the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies. Christ went through a better, more perfect tent, tabernacle, that was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. He used his own blood, not the blood of goats and bulls, for the sacrifice. He went first into the most holy place and offered the sacrifice once and for all to free us forever. Wow. What a provision. And when you understand the tabernacle and the significance of the tabernacle, um, some Bible scholars believe it's a reflection of the Garden of Eden. It's designed in the same layout as the Garden of Eden, and it's a way for us to uh, re-establish ourselves in God's presence. Um, and Jesus provided the way to do that. It's, it's amazing, and it's, it's really incredible that the Bible has so many layers. That we pull back, we discover such truths. So... I don't know. I've spent some time meditating on this, and maybe you should too. But what what do those rooms represent to you in the Christian life? I, I kind of think of the of the outer court, <coughs> um, kind of the, the the worldly Christians, the ones who maybe come to church periodically, but not not every week. Maybe don't really pray much, but they they believe in God, and the, and they'll come to Him, and maybe confess sins and ask for forgiveness now and again, but the worldly Christians are not really entering into any sort of um, spiritual life. Um, I put some words in my margin on my notes, superficial, religious, legalistic maybe. Um, Craig's taking us through a study on Galatians. Galatians uh, talks a little about uh, legalism, um, license on the one hand, where we, we're kind of taking for granted God's grace and liberty. Liberty is where we all want to be, in God's grace, but also communing, communing with him. Um, so I, I see that outer court as the superficiality, the religious um, people who don't really know God. And then there's a holy place. Jesus is the door to the holy place. This is where we commune together at the table of showbread, S-H-E-W, and we rely on the continual intercession of Jesus on our behalf. Right? And this, we have the incense of worship, of, um, of, of thanksgiving to God. In this room, um, we enjoy fellowship with others. We're comfortable with it, the idea that Christ's shed blood covers our sins and that he's cleansing us as we continue to confess our sins to him. 
I was really encouraged by um, Jordan's um, word this morning about um, even that even that concept of soap. And I think if we start with 15 minutes, we could we could probably we'll probably enjoy extending that as time goes by. Um, have a think about it. What's been the content of our prayers in this last week? I confess that there have been days when I look back and I think the only things I have prayed for, I prayed about, are things that I need. We treat God like the corner dairy sometimes. Well, please heal this. Please look after so-and-so. Please take care of our travels. Please do this. Please do that. And we never actually enter into any sort of communion with him. We're not listening to his voice. We're not meditating on his word. I don't know. Is that a, is that a, is that a picture of us being in the holy place but not in communion with him? I don't know. You think about it for yourself and what it means to you. But for me, uh, the holy place is where we come confidently to the throne to enjoy our Father's love and his fellowship. This is where he encourages us, he admonishes us, he teaches us, he shows his love for us. This church has been blessed with Pastor Andrew and Rena and now Pastor Frank and Amy who clearly spend time with God and hear his voice. But it's not the pastor's job to hear his voice on our behalf. That's that's Old Testament. That's the, that's what the high priest used to do. Now, God has made Jesus has made the way for each and every one of us to hear God's voice on a daily basis. We commune with Him. We spend time with Him. We meditate on His Word. We listen for Him to speak to us. And Jesus has done that. We can come confidently to the throne, knowing our sins have been taken care of, and that we can we can spend time with Him. Um, we're gonna we're gonna sing a song. If Frank could come back up and lead us in this, it's a good good father. I really encourage you to use this song. You can stay seated if you want. Declare your intention to spend more time with God, enjoy His presence, not be afraid of what you might lose by coming closer to Him, but rather what you might gain. Right? Use this time to commit to the Lord, and. Um, if there's anybody here who has never accepted Christ as your saviour, we'd love to lead you to him. Just come and sit in one of the front rows and we'll come pray, pray with you after the song. Similarly, anyone who wants some prayer to be closer to God, if this is spoken to you today about where you're sitting, which room you're sitting in, in the temple, come sit up the front and we'll pray with you afterwards. Yeah?